I think you have to get to a place where you're just ready to be in a relationship. And I think a small part of that is just ready to make a commitment to someone. And I think a larger part goes to the whole cliche of you can't love someone else until you love yourself. And at least for me, that was a big part of it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special episode, pilot edition of a new sub-series called Humans of Intimacy. In case you're not already aware, we are building a very exciting platform. Yes, it's not a website, it's a platform, and it is going to be the hub for intimacy and relationships, your go-to resource from content to resources, key players in this industry, products, services, and recommendations, along with a community of like-minded people committed to deepening their relationship with themselves and deepening their connections with other people as a result. I hope you're all as excited as I am. And if you want more information, make sure that you're signed up for our existing newsletter or you can sign up for the waitlist at bbxx.world and we'll be opening some of the features up for beta testing in the coming weeks. So make sure you're staying tuned and in the know so that you can help us build not only this platform, for better relationships and intimacy, but build healthier, more fulfilling relationships in your own life as well. One of our favorite things at BBXX is provide the knowledge as well as the resources for this self-understanding, self-development and better relationships. That's why on the platform, we will be providing with our personal recommendations for our favorite experts, organizations, courses, etc. But we're really excited to announce that we already have partnered up with one of our favorite companies called Actually. And Actually is providing couples paths, which are sort of a modern take on couples counseling, but way cooler. So, Studies have shown that premarital counseling improves relationship satisfaction by as much as 30%. And 30% might not sound like a ton. It's like borderline, would you buy it or not if it's 30% off? But let's think about that is the difference between living in a C minus, borderline D plus, all right? For thinking 70% to 100%, that is the difference between a C minus, D plus, and an A plus, 100%. So this is huge. And the reason why this is huge is because counseling traditionally is the place where you'd talk about the tough stuff. You would dig into finances, splitting the work at home, having a dual career, communication, sex, intimacy, values, and planning for the future. But unfortunately, these things have traditionally only been offered through your rabbi or the church or associated with religious organizations or your parents. What do they give you? Not that much. They tell you marriage is tough, but you know it doesn't go much deeper than that. So actually, 
is providing a totally secular, totally modern, awesome take on big topics. And this is a series of five expert-led virtual sessions for you and your partner to join together to talk about big stuff. These couples paths are an incredible opportunity at any stage to really dig deep and connect with your partner. And here's the thing. This is the kind of stuff that we can dig into in the beginning and make sure we're on the same page and we're building on that shared understanding and foundation much earlier on. So this is a perfect program for any couple especially couples who might be going through big transitions. A move, a new job, a new phase of the relationship, whether that's after you've been dating for a year and you really want to get serious and invest more in your relationship together, whether you've just got engaged and you want to make sure you're setting yourself up for success in marriage. This program is incredible. And not only are you looking at 30% increased relationship satisfaction, but you're also going to be getting 30% off with the code BBXX30. So if you want to sign up, check out letsactuallygo.com. And from that page, you can link out to the virtual paths page to get more information about these pathways. And that's at letsactuallygo.com slash virtual dash paths. You can also check out the link in our bio on our Instagram at bbxx.world. If you're signed up for our newsletter, you're going to be getting more announcements about this. And they're doing new pathways every couple of weeks. So they've got one coming up on November 14th, another one on December 1st. And again, this is the perfect time to set your relationship up for success, set yourself up for success going into the end of 2020 to make sure you're starting off 2021 on the right foot, ready to take on the new year as a team. Thank you for sticking with me on those exciting announcements. I truly hope you check that out. And if you're not currently in a relationship, be sure to share it with anybody you know. You can get more information on our newsletter and on our Instagram a really great program. And for now, I'd love to tell you about this pilot for a new little series called Humans of Intimacy. So if you follow us on Instagram at bbxx.world, you've probably seen over the past months, over the last year or two, this series that we do called Humans of Intimacy, where we ask people to share a lesson they've learned in life, love, communication, sex, identity, really anything, because these all are the building blocks of connection and intimacy. And so we've had people share these insights, and it's really a more personal side of things. And we've gotten really great feedback on our casual conversation series, which are interviews we've done via IG Live. And people have really loved the more personal narrative aspect. And so I really wanted to take what we've learned from those IG Live interviews and bring it to you here on some more in-depth podcast interviews. And so in deciding how to best start exploring this intimate new series, I decided to start in one of the most intimate places, which is family. And so for this interview, 
It is very near and dear to my heart. It is an interview with my older brother, Dave Laurie, who is seven years older than me and so has a bit more wisdom and life experience. And he shares some of the struggles and lessons learned in life and in his relationship with his now wife. And so what was really interesting in this interview is that obviously we have had so many shared experiences that come through, but where I can still be constantly learning from him by seeing and hearing about those shared experiences through a different lens, and also by hearing about his own personal relationship with his wife, Sarah, with whom he has built an incredible partnership, and they are one of my all-time favorite power couples. And so I'm excited to share not only this new series with all of you, but the insight from one of the people who is most near and dear to me in this world. Dave, thanks so much for joining me today on the show in this experiment of casual conversations meets humans of intimacy to talk about your personal experiences, lessons learned, insights gained, and perhaps share some, if not advice, fellow struggles with some of our listeners. So I will have you open with telling us a bit about what shaped your views on relationships when you were growing up? What were the different influences that played into the perspective you had later on in life? And that could be from sex to communication or intimacy, but what kind of shaped that worldview of relationships that you had? I think for a long time, it was a very pessimistic view. And despite having a whole 10 years of our parents being together, their divorce was so ugly and they fought so much, even in the memory of them being together, that having seen that, and then I think another huge influence was also overwhelmingly among my closest friends growing up, their parents also getting divorced. And so I really had a view that marriage for the long term or even monogamy outside of marriage was kind of doomed from the start. And I think that really shaped a lot of the way I approached relationships and maybe initially was thought they were doomed to fail uh, and maybe was a little bit too much selfish. And honestly, I look back and I don't know if that was wrong to begin with where relationships from when you start until I would probably say until your mid twenties these days probably are doomed from the start anyways. And so to really view them in much more of an exploratory learn to see what it's like being in a relationship, learn about yourself in and out of a relationship, rather than thinking you're going to meet your future spouse in the 8th, ninth, 11th, 12th grade. I was never had that sort of notion. 
Yeah, I remember what you mentioned about your closest friends also having divorced parents. When I think back to kind of the people I was closest with growing up, let alone our aunts, our uncles, I remember one summer when I was 20 years old and I spent a lot of time that summer at the DeMont's house. And I remember realizing it was the first time I'd ever been around a married couple, a healthy, happy married couple, and had kind of adopted that same pessimistic or somewhere in between realist and pessimistic, but definitely not a growth learning mentality, but found myself fascinated, just like totally enamored with their relationship. And I remember thinking, well, this is what everybody's talking about. I mean, if this is what marriage is, then I want to buy into it too. I want to believe in this crazy thing that everybody's excited about. I just was totally blown away and didn't even know that was possible where you could have fun, (laughs) play Scrabble and drink wine and go on bike rides and be best friends and have that kind of really, that just hadn't even made it onto my radar. And we kind of, I touched on this with my talk with Sarah, but the whole kind of, you can't be what you can't see, or you can't hope to emulate something that you've never been exposed to. So what would you phrase your understandings of relationships as at that point, the pessimistic, or what would you say kind of your goals going into them were? Because again, I remember as well thinking, well, statistically, the relationships are doomed to fail. You date, I don't know how many people throughout your life. Maybe you end up with one of them or two long-term. So statistically, it's almost a 100% chance it'll fail. But that Obviously, even if that's true, it can also be true that you should lean in, be vulnerable, learn from it. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. I think probably first and foremost, at least for me, was you like someone and you just want them to like you back. Yeah. Especially earlier when you have a crush on someone and who doesn't want affection return, let alone, even if you don't like someone, it's always nice to hear that someone else likes you, whether that's (laughs) in the concept of a relationship or just acceptance in general. And then I think being a young male, there's another two things that might be more unique to men of just wanting to explore things more sexually and then almost wanting to have done that to have that stamp of approval among your friends as well. You mentioned familial influences and mom and dad and their relationship and the relationship of the parents of your friends. But what other kind of influences such as peer influence or the media or that kind of thing do you think also played in? I mean, I think other than that, it was just my two best friends as a kid. Both of their parents got divorced. And then, in fact, my best friend's dad ended up dating our mom. And they tried to do it behind our back. There was a lot less honesty than I would have Mm. expected in relationships and describing 
not even describing, but being open about your relationship to other people. Yeah. And I don't necessarily fault her for having done that, of maybe wanting to protect us from thinking she was trying to replace dad or not wanting to introduce someone new into our life before she knew it was going to work for the long term because it, it didn't. But I definitely think that played a large role into it too. Mm-hmm. But I don't think, if anything, the media, I think, portrays a very different relationship or what relationships look like. And I still believe that to this day that they're overly optimistic. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I guess another moment I remember in some of our conversations is I once asked you, and I don't know if you'll remember this, I asked you how many times in your life you've been in love. And you, before meeting Sarah, had been in several relationships, long-term relationships, more serious relationships. And you told me once that it was just with Sarah. And so I guess if you could just walk me through kind of the evolution of your earlier relationships. And obviously today you and Sarah have such an incredible relationship that never would have been possible had you maintained that same mentality. And so I guess would just love to hear about the process of kind of reprogramming your perspective and your kind of attitude and involvement in your relationships? Yeah, I think there's a couple things at play. I think first, at least for me, I think you have to get to a place where you're just ready to be in a relationship. And I think a small part of that is just ready to make a commitment to someone. And I think a larger part goes to the whole cliche of, You can't love someone else until you love yourself. And at least for me, that was a big part of it. And I think for a little bit for Sarah, where when we first met, we were 24, 25, and both had, I would say, as much or more insecurities that someone in their mid-20s has, where you're trying to figure out who you are, what you want to be. You're the brokest person living in the city. So there's a lot of things that you still need to figure out about yourself before you even can think about what do I want for the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. You're more just trying to figure out who am I and what do I want in general? And then you can start to even think about involving another person in that. So I think those two things I had to learn about myself. And a lot of that is realizing after the fact how insecure you were and how little you knew at the time and how much of a shitty boyfriend I was at the beginning. Somebody actually just this morning asked me the question, what is something you loved when you were a child that you loved doing before the world told you otherwise? And so I guess I just want you to describe yourself a bit when you were younger and some of the things, activities, tools, people who helped you develop your sense of self, Um, whether those were insecurities, securities, to then be able to kind of follow you along that journey a bit better. 
you mentioned you can't love somebody else or have a stable, successful relationship until you love yourself. And so wanted to kind of dive deeper into sources of insecurity or the journey out of that, which I imagine aligns with kind of the evolution and kind of the minds that you were going into relationships with. So I don't know if just talking about some of your earlier relationships or insecurities would kind of shine more light on that. Yeah, certainly. In the earlier relationships, I think because when you're younger, you can't know who you really are. And so you are trying to impress people or present this image of what you think is cool or what they want to see and get someone to like you because of that, whether that's where the clothes you wear, the music you listen to, interests, hobbies, anything of that nature. And then you start to realize, well, I want to be with someone who wants to be with me. And I think it's twofold of, well, if I don't like myself, how could anybody like me? And so I think growing and realize first that I want to present who I truly am because I want to be with someone who really wants to be with me and being open about that and being vulnerable and communicating and trusting that you can tell someone something and that they won't judge it, but they'll at least be empathetic, compassionate, and have an understanding. And then it's also maturing, figuring out what you want. For me, a part of it was switching from a job to a career where you can really, for me, I think a lot of my self-worth has come from being career-driven and being successful at work for better and for worse. And it's, I don't even necessarily think of it at the shallow end of that, but finding something that you really enjoy doing that you know you will do for a long time is a big part of that. I think another part of it is just taking a good look at who you are and being much more open about that. And whether it's embracing some of the nerdier, quirkier things you do, whether that's dancing whenever you want, whether that's playing Friday Night Magic and not giving a shit if the world knows bald and just owning it. There's a lot of things where you're like, this is just who I am. And that's one part of it. But I think equally as important and and actually perhaps more powerful is that if you are truly vulnerable and show someone who you are and they're like, I love it, sign me up, then that probably instills as much confidence as you could ever build inside of you. Mm -hmm. And it's not false confidence from somebody being into a false version of you that you're projecting or, or trying to be, which again, won't hold up. And it's almost like the fountain of confidence yeah. where you could feel on top of the world and be doing great, but there will always be additional hurdles. And I think on the one hand, to ever have a full cup of confidence is impossible whether that's just our mental psychology or there's always going to be circumstances, whether it's getting laid off, which happened to me and I was depressed for months 
mom dying. There's always going to be things that are going to shake your confidence, that are going to throw at worst into a deep state of depression. And having a partner there is a huge part of that where I think for the overwhelming majority of people, that's too much to ask one person. And so to have truly a rock there that you can rely on, that you can be vulnerable and who will help you through that, whether it's just hearing what you have to say, whether it's saying, I still love you regardless of any of this, or was Sarah and I joke of like, I'm your number one fan, whatever you want to do, I will be there. I will cheer you on. I will support you. I will encourage you. I will help you. Just saying that out loud, you're like, yeah, that's that's incredible. And so having someone like that, I think just fixes a lot of those issues too. You kind of touched on the need to be an authentic version of yourself to kind of own that, express that. And I'm wondering for younger people who don't have a sense of self yet, what advice you would give to try and work towards that, whether that's leaning into certain things or tools or how to try and get there sooner or own that sooner? I would say it would communication is the big one. And that doesn't mean talking to someone. One, communication means that you're always open to having a conversation with your partner about whatever. Sometimes it's going to be stuff that is uncomfortable for you, for them. Sometimes you're not going to want to talk. You're just, oh, I just want to go to bed. Let's talk about this tomorrow or I'm not in the mood. Sometimes it's communication styles where someone can be something happens And I need to immediately communicate this to you. Sometimes, like for myself, I am much more introspective and I need to sort of realize what's going on and think through it before I can even have a conversation about it. So sometimes that's me. I just need to go walk for 20 minutes to gather my thoughts. Sometimes that also means a part of the communication is to go back to that You can say the same thing many different ways. And especially in a relationship where learning how to give constructive criticism is a huge part of that. When you have a problem versus just calling someone out or you're being too loud and knowing how to say something in a loving, constructive way. Because at the end of the day, if you're truly committed with someone, you The end goal is to build and strengthen that relationship. And that's what communication is. And I think the last part is is almost like a contract where if you are going through something, whether it's in the context of you and your partner, you and your kids, you and a friend, you and your family, you and your spouse's family, that you will be open and honest with the other person and not hold it in. And I think that is just as important as any of those things, if not all of them put together of don't hold things in and let them build out of control. And so often things are either a miscommunication or a misunderstanding or not correctly reading intent. Yeah, or those 
huge arguments over a small thing because it's not actually about that one small thing. It's about all the ones that somebody has held in and that have built on top of each other and represent this huge, bigger picture. Yeah. And then being able to laugh about those. I mean, that's probably one of my favorite things with Sarah is a lot of times our small, petty arguments are some of our favorite jokes for like the next couple of days. <laughs> What's an example? Whether it's something like Sarah ate all the Christmas cookies that <laughs> my mom baked and within the first 12 hours, she's like, oh, I thought you didn't want those. I was like, no, those were my favorite cookies. It's like, of course I wanted those. I'm guilty of 10 times as many that she's done. But a lot of times there's just, these are funny stories for the next few days. A couple of other things, kind of being a young man and with kind of peer pressure or societal pressure or trying to get that stamp of approval. I'm curious what your definition of masculinity was when you were growing up versus what your definition of masculinity might be today. So I think when I was younger, a lot of masculinity was wrapped up in this classical concept of machismo, of being the strongest, the fastest, the bravest, the funniest, most handsome, whatever you want to call the most of anything. And it was always at more of a superficial level and you would never show pain or anything like that. And I think I've realized now that it's much more a sense of being comfortable with who you are and your sense of self. And I remember I realized, and I think in high school, everybody is swept up with wanting to be cool. And I kind of realized maybe this was just because I was at MIT, but there were no cool kids in college where it's like nobody cared really if you were cool anymore, let alone after you graduate, where when you're a 23-year-old living in San Francisco, you're probably like the poorest person in the entire city, just living paycheck to paycheck. There's less of this coolness, if you even want to call it that. And I think just getting comfortable with who you are, being open, whether that's with your feelings or expressing and and deepening friendships. And I think I've really prided myself in that over the years of I've told many of my male friends that I love them because I do. And I value the relationships I have with them. And I really came to realize that other than you and Rach And to maybe a lesser extent, our parents, I had no one to talk to a lot about anything that I was going through. So just realizing that if I wanted to have a better support system, let alone when you graduate after college, you need to find a way to keep in touch with your friends or you will lose those friendships. So really working to deepen and strengthen those relationships to the point where I love my best friends. Yeah, I think, and we have a few different podcasts where we talk a lot about how 
a key part to how much grown men struggle with not having an extended community, not having a support system, and that if they do have a partner, that oftentimes the entire that partner is supposed to kind of, I don't want to use the word bear the burden, but kind of carry their entire emotional weight or when another weight is the only person they have to go to and one person is not enough of a support system for anybody. And so really trying to help people tap into vulnerability, tap into authenticity, deepen connections with other men. But it's really complicated and masculinity in general is extremely complicated and there's almost not space in our culture for it in a lot of ways. And you know, just the other day, when I go to look up, for example, stock photos of things, and I'll Google male friendship, and you have either bros at the gym, guys like on a hike or playing basketball, I've Googled men hugging and nothing comes up. There are no stock photos. It doesn't make it into the stock photos of our culture. You have on one end, they'll have a gay couple kissing, and then there are just non-intimate male friendships where they're nowhere near each other, not showing affection. And so just, again, going back to can you be what you can't see or what you don't even know exists as a young high school male who is caught up in that whole scene. And how detrimental that is in a relationship, too, of you are either or maybe both unwilling or don't think it's appropriate to express your feelings and you really don't know how because you haven't done it before and you don't even realize how lucky you are to finally have someone that you can express yourself to. How do you think you learned how to express yourself? Reading books. I mean, really like, like anything, as we joke in our household, What does Elmo say? You got to (laughs) practice. As Elmo says, it's not that you're not good at it. It's that you're not good at it yet. You just need to practice. I love it. So learning what your different communication styles might be, how you can express yourself, and then just trying it out. And then the more you do it, the easier it becomes. And maybe me talking to a therapist certainly help and realizing or even knowing, I think just Sarah by vocalizing things helps her work through those versus I tend to internalize things, but realizing a lot of the time when you, when I have to put something into words, that really gets me that last step of figuring out how I truly feel about something. Yeah, well, your brain processes it in a different way. And that's why the same with journaling, whether it's vocal or written, the way your brain has to process things to express it in a communicational way outside of your own brain totally changes the processes behind it and the way you can kind of then reabsorb it and learn from it. So... I'm not sure if there was anything you wanted to include from kind of earlier relationships or kind of the role you played or the mentality you had. But from there, I'd love to kind of dive deeper into your relationship with Sarah. And I kind of mentioned this to her, how you guys have such an amazing relationship that I often 
reference to other people. I think you guys are such an amazing team, have such a great kind of energy about you and the way you work together and kind of the balance, but not in the sense of being measured in any way, but kind of an integration between the two of you that I think is incredible and a great example. But what I find just as fascinating about your relationship is that it didn't start out that way and actually started out quite rocky. And oftentimes for people whose relationships maybe start out a similar way, it doesn't end up working out. And I think a lot of times probably for the best, but I think you guys are also this incredible case of where circumstances, timing, maturity really does play a huge role in things. And so I'd love to kind of have you speak a bit to the struggles in the, I guess you guys meeting and all of that, but specifically some of the the struggles and the evolution of them in the beginning stages of your relationship. Yeah, I think the timing is an interesting one where if we'd have met a few years earlier when I most certainly was not ready for a longer term commitment and at 22, I think for a lot of people, they're just not ready. And we met at 24. So even then it's, you're still trying to figure out like, am I actually mm-hmm. ready to even meet? As, as I even told someone, if God came to me and was like, your wife is through that door right now, if you want to meet her, I'd be like, oh, maybe I wait like a year or so. <laughs> so I think that was a struggle too, of like, you don't even know if you're ready for the relationship. And I wasn't, and, and I, I struggled with that in terms of what the very beginning of dating, being faithful to her and the fact that I was just trying to experiment, see a lot of people, meet a lot of people, and didn't even think I was ready for that. And then I moved down to Los Angeles. So even when we were thinking about having a truly committed relationship, doing two years of long distance, I mean, if for anyone who's done that, they know just how hard that can be was a real challenge. How would you describe your communication style in the beginning or some of kind of the the areas of conflict or tension and what they stemmed from? I think there was insecurity, at, at least for me, on a personal level. And then I think on both of us, where when neither of that you're truly committed, then you're not as likely to commit. You're scared. And a lot of times that came out over the little things where that was the undercurrent. And then maybe it was, I don't even know. I'm, this is pro- not even a good example. Like fighting over dishes or something like that, mm-hmm. where it boils over. Probably too often there was alcohol involved. Once again, I think that for a lot of people that's dating in your 20s. And then I think what really actually helped with that insecurity and when you're trying to commit to someone and you're living separately. And once again, I don't think this is for everybody, but it's that, oh, are we going to see each other? When are we going to see each other again? I want to hang out with you. I want you to hang out with me. When we moved in together, it solved 
the vast majority of our problems where there was none of this, when am I going to see you next? Do you want to see me? It was, oh, now, yeah, go out, hang out with your friends. Like, I'm going to see you when you get back. Like, we live together now. Mm -hmm. You know, we're much more committed. We don't have to, that whole worry of, as Sarah and I joked, our biggest fights were, I want to hang out with you more. Like, at the, like that was where I was like, so we're, you're mad at me because you just want to hang out with me more. And this was both of us saying yeah. that. And I think for a lot of people, once you sort of realize that, it can go a long way. And when you're in your 20s or you're younger, you sort of think you have all the time in the world and you say yes to a lot of things. And that's great. And I think that's one of the things as I've matured or gotten older and lamer is you realize how valuable time is, who you want to spend it with, and you get better at saying no. And your list of priorities shortens and becomes deeper. Yeah. Like we, I recently did an interview about aging and there are just tons of studies. And that's part of what also contributes to older people being happier and more secure is that kind of refocus on priorities, not kind of wasting energy on things that they don't want to do. And maybe when you're younger, you actually do, but there's this whole, I was recently listening to a book about algorithms and it's this kind of explore versus exploit problem where, for example, if I move to a city, do I keep trying new cafes, new restaurants, or do I go back to the ones that I know are good? And it depends on how long, how much longer you're going to be in that city or how much longer you're going to be in this life. But as you get older, there's more value that you get from going to the same places, going deeper into those same relationships than developing newer, shallower ones or trying a new place that doesn't end up being that great. How would you describe being insecure? And that kind of feeling and process versus being secure. I do think, I mean, everybody has insecurities. That is a fact. And I think the way that insecurities in women are talked about and portrayed so much more, it's almost more widely accepted or more of just a fact. So I think that men's insecurities go largely undetected, perhaps sometimes even within themselves. And I think that men's insecurities really do are at the root of a lot of issues in relationships of all kinds. I think, I think it's very it. pervasive and not, there's not enough awareness around it. When you're younger, you just don't understand. I think it's twofold. What how other people view you and this larger concept of what either other males or females think about you or perceive you. And then the second part, which at least for me was very powerful, was all of these things that you judge yourself on, most everyone else doesn't notice doesn't or notice. doesn't even care about you. And the second you sort of realize that can cause its own insecurities of all these things you did that you thought everybody would notice or care, nobody cares. Yeah. 
And I think as you get older, you kind of realize that of you're worried about these things, but literally no one else cares about those. No one else notices those. And even the people that don't, they don't care. And it shouldn't influence that. Yeah. If you're just kind of the metaphor of if there's something in your tooth, which your friends should tell you if there's something in your tooth, but a lot of times they might not even notice. Or I just remember (laughs) hearing this, there's this one magical Reddit chain that I once came across and it was what it was in, I think, Reddit men. And it was, what are things that women are insecure about that men don't care about or don't notice? And I mean, there was everything from freckles to big boobs to small boobs to all kinds of stuff. And there was this one guy who told this story about how his now wife, I think actually she had lost a bet to her friend. Her friend set them up and said they would start dating. And she said, no way. They started dating. They're now married. So she had to shave off one of her eyebrows or both of them. I don't remember. And he didn't notice. (laughs) There's just something to that extreme where, or you go to the party and you're thinking about this one thing. Would you ever notice that tiny detail on somebody else? No. No. Maybe if it's her eyebrows, but maybe not even. Even with Sarah, I think that's the one of these teaching is like, there's all these things where I'm like, Sarah's giving me impression. She didn't notice. That's, <laughs> you know, that's fine though. You, if anything, that's empowering of it's freeing. Yeah. You're to still know your that, own person. Yeah. No, but like you fear all this judgment or I think a lot of the insecurity, at least for me, is I would just go back and rethink everything mm-hmm. I had done mm-hmm. or said. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, nobody cares or is yeah. still thinking about that. And if they do, um, and if not they are, the right. I can confront them. Yeah. Or even if I said or did something that I think embarrassed myself, if it's truly people that I want to be around for the long term, then they're not going to care because mm-hmm. they, it shouldn't be one instance. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying one instance can't ruin a friendship, but most of the time, if you said something stupid, you can always either explain it or apologize. And most of the time people are like, dude, I didn't even notice you said that. Yeah. The number of times I've had friends, oh my God, I'm so sorry I said that. I'm like, I haven't thought about that since. Yeah. And I think both on the negative end, if you're afraid somebody's going to notice something and judge you for it, or if you're doing something awaiting or expecting the approval or the praise of somebody else, then there's also kind of a false underlying motivation there as well, kind of relying on somebody else in the kind of for the positive feedback rather than that security in you are doing it for yourself. Yeah, and that's it perpetuates too of if you're not being true to yourself, if you're pretending or doing something that you don't want to do, and all of a sudden you start to think that's the reason you're being accepted, you're going to continue that behavior and that it's just going to get worse, almost like an addiction. Yeah. What would you say that makes you and Sarah work together well now? Or what are kind of the... the... So many things. I mean, I, to your point, I feel incredibly lucky to have met her 
and to have found something, someone who cares for me so deeply. Once to, to your early point, it hasn't been easy. It's been a ton of work. I don't want anyone to think that we don't put in the work. And I think some of that has been an evolution of our communication. Some of that is just like literally really, truly loving someone at their core. And I joke with Sarah for better and for worse. She knows me better than I know myself which can be scary sometimes. And then I think a lot of it is, we'll joke, teamwork makes the dream work, where you don't think about it in terms of keeping score. It's you both have an end goal, whether that's your relationship or kids or your careers, and you're on the same team. And, and I think I go back and I feel very lucky to have played team sports growing up and sometimes you get to score the goal and sometimes you're just playing defense the whole game. And I think taking that approach to a relationship can be very instructive where you it's not always going to be fun. You got to put in the work. Sometimes you got to put in more work. Sometimes you're the one who's got to clean. Sometimes you're the one who's got to drive. Sometimes you're the one who needs to be vulnerable or most importantly, apologize. Just learning how to say, listen, I'm really sorry. And just starting off with that, if it is truly genuine, I think goes a long way towards at least starting a conversation. It doesn't mean someone might forgive you then and there, but at least if you're genuine about it, it will, like, no one's going to say, I don't want to talk to you. Was it just practice that got you guys out of the earlier phases? Or I guess it was kind of the leaning in and the commitment behind it? I really think it's that commit to earlier of like, if you know that you can be exactly who you are around your partner and everyone talks about communication where it's not just talking or, or trust. Trust doesn't mean like, oh, I trust this person is not going to cheat on me or something like that, which you might think in high school, that's what trust means. No, trust, at least for me, means two very important things is that one, that I can be myself with you and I trust that you can be yourself with me. And I think that's really hard to do, to be vulnerable, to show people exactly who you are, to whether that's cry or tell them some of your deepest, darkest thoughts and to trust that they won't judge you and at the end of the day that they will love you no matter what, unconditionally. And I think that's really powerful. And then once you know that you have that person, and it takes a long time to get there, mm -hmm. once you have that person, then uh, I think a, a large part of it is that don't F it up. Don't sweat the small stuff. Don't stay angry. You said kind of when you know you have that person earlier mentioned that you have to get to a place where you know you're ready, but how do you know you're ready and how do you know if you found that person? Do you ever really know kind of in those earlier stages? I would say you do and you don't. Like after the fact, now I know that I did, but even when I was 
thinking about proposing to Sarah. And it's funny to tell her where I was nervous she was going to say no. <laughs> this was, we had dated for five years. <laughs> She'd been asking me to propose for maybe six months at this point, And I was still not 100% sure. <laughs> but for me to get to that point of when I was ready to propose was, and I think I had told you this because someone had asked me, I said, I can't picture my life without Sarah, mm. where she's such a big part that I can't even think about life without her because she has to be in it. And if anything, that has grown even more where not only can I not think about life without Sarah, but I would be terrified of any sort of life without her. You have talked about luck a lot before and how when you get into these relationships, you don't necessarily know what will come along, what kind of events, tragedies, successes, twists and turns your life is going to take. And that very easily, and I think very often, people can grow apart versus you talk about how you feel very lucky that you guys happened to grow together in the same way and get closer over the years. How do you think luck plays a role in these things? So I think at, at the beginning, you're lucky to have met that person to begin with, let alone the timing of when you meet them. Yeah. If I met Sarah at 20, it would have been totally different. And then I, I do think there is a small element of people just change over time and that we've grown together is a little bit lucky. I think of the context of our parents, they were together for 20 years before they got divorced. So Sarah and I have only been together 13 years now. So to think of and now I can never even imagine how they ever we're met together. and were together in the first place. So to think of how much they must have changed yeah. as people well, over 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but you see this a lot. Yeah. And we have friends where, especially once again, if you meet when you're younger, I'm not going to say you're a totally different person, but you evolve, you mature you change in some ways over time. There can be complexities of throwing kids to that, death in the family, things with your friends, loss of a job. All of those things can add a tremendous amount of stress to a relationship. And I think that it can either bring you closer or tear you apart. What are two experiences that have shaped your life? I think for me, the biggest, at least to begin with, is our grandfather who spent his 20s in an Auschwitz, a concentration camp. And I thought about that a lot whenever I felt sorry for myself of especially in my 20s when I was the same age that Opa was in Auschwitz, where how can I even dare to think about how bad things are for me if 
the someone I care deeply about, our grandfather was in a concentration camp at that same time. So I think that helps to really set to me that even when things are could be dark or feel bad, that they could definitely be worse. So I think that always set about me this mentality of, I think most people who meet me describe me as an optimist. And I really do try and out of any situation, see the bright side, the shitty silver lining out of something. And, and if anything, try and learn from something where, okay, something bad happened, but if you don't learn from it, then it really just is a, a tragedy. So I would say that'd be the first. And then the, the second would be the death of mom and really realizing how precious life is. And I mean that in a too often, especially when you're younger, you take it for granted, whether that's your own life or your relationships and to not hold back and really what your priorities should be. And once again, to these shitty silver linings, if mom would be so proud to see how close you, me, Rach and Meredith are now, I think that's something that she would take a tremendous amount of pride in how much closer you know, I've gotten with Isabel. And that really shaped at the time I just had Sienna. And for me, I was so lucky to have Sarah and Sienna and be able to see like a light at the end of the tunnel. And I knew that eventually I would feel happiness again. And so that was a small factor in wanting to have more kids, but then really the relationship with my own siblings where I was like, this is the most important thing in, in my life and in my wife's life and how much I want my kids to have siblings and to be able to have those relationships forever. Since you kind of, towards the end there, mentioned kids, and I know that a lot of your parenting philosophy has a lot of undertones of humor now where everything that mom ever told you now makes a lot more sense. <laughs> you have three kids. What would you say ages four, three, and not even one? What would you say three of the biggest lessons you've learned from that are? Patience. <laughs> just how incredibly important patience is. I think that is easily number one because you want to instill that in your kids. And if you're not patient, you're just going to lose your mind. The, the second would be, I don't know if this is exactly what you were thinking, but it has deepened my relationship with my own parents, my in-laws and to some extent, for sure, anyone else who has kids where you're just in this special club where you can't have, I don't want to say no idea without being a parent, but just what that bond feels like. And 
to then know you hear this phrase, unconditional love. And I think most people maybe get there with the spouse. Your parents love you in a way that you can never even understand until you have kids of your own. And that is like a truly special self-actualization moment that I, I think is really cool. What advice, you always knew you wanted to have kids because I've asked you about that before. What advice would you give to somebody who was considering having kids, depending on which side of the fence they were on? It's the coolest, most rewarding thing you can ever do. And whether that's if you've had success in sports or a career or anything like that, just getting a congratulations from a two or a three-year-old <laughs> in some ways can eclipse anything that you've accomplished in your sport or professional career. And I mean that in utter seriousness. It can just be one of the most rewarding things that you can ever do. Sometimes just getting three kids to bed at night feels like I've won the Super Bowl sometimes. And, and You're then probably the thing, just as tired as if you had just Oh, more tired, <laughs> yes. And, and, and then I think a, a few other things is part of the reason, the kids are just, they're so fun. They will keep you young. You will never have a shortage of laughter with kids around. And you've essentially, for those who aren't sure, every day when I get home from work or something, my kids cannot wait to see me and hug me and kiss me. And we all need and love people like that in our life, whether it's kids, a spouse, or pets, of that having that love that is so strong for you, just it feels great. Would you give the same advice to somebody who was on the other side of the fence? If somebody wasn't sure that they wanted to have kids, like, do you think anybody could get that same satisfaction from it? Or how hard yeah, is it? No, I think you will have a bond that you can't even imagine with your child. You really can't. And I was even worried before we had Sienna. Oh, Am I going to love her? Because you don't know. You've never met this person. You have no idea what they look like. They're an insane amount of work, but I, you will love them more than perhaps anyone else you've ever loved before in your life. And then the, the other thing I would say for those, oh, I don't know if I'm ready. You're never ready. <laughs> no one is ever like ready for kids. You can maybe be a little bit more ready, but no one is ever like fully equipped to have kids. It's a ton of learning on the fly. It is a ton of work. And you can be ready in the regard where, whether it's financially, emotionally, or in a relationship, or just not wanting to be out and about all the time because those things are certainly more difficult if you don't have those boxes checked. Mm -hmm. 
you kind of covered this bit earlier, but what advice would you give to your younger self? Probably that same, don't sweat the small stuff. Nobody cares. Just like, that's really powerful of just all these things you're thinking about. People aren't to the extent. And then in relationships, once again, just don't sweat the small stuff where if you want to be with someone for the long term, a lot of the times you have these arguments and you'll just laugh about them afterwards. So just know that. Also, uh, stretch more. (laughs) Always be stretching. Yes, yes. Abs. Do you believe in regret or do you think that mistakes made become necessary parts to a learning process? I actually think about this a lot because I like to say and I like to think that I really don't have many, if not any, regrets. And I think that's one, I think that has a lot of privilege in it where I've been lucky to have had, for the most part, good choices laid out in front of me and a good support system where I was not in a position to make many, you know, poor choices, both out of a support group or necessity. And then I also am in that strong belief where you're going to make mistakes and they're only mistakes or they're only regrets if you haven't learned from them, if you haven't grown, if you haven't evolved, and if you don't let them happen again. If you keep making mistakes, then you should absolutely have regrets. And if you've ever harmed someone, once again, you might, like myself, I've been privileged not to destroy any relationships with my actions. And I like to think that if I've ever made mistakes, I at least would be in a position where I could apologize and would want to. What? is your definition of intimacy? I mean, I think a lot of it is being close and being vulnerable. And I think that has evolved too, not where it's not sex anymore, where I forget this study, but I was reading about like just couples who shower together or even naked around each other where you're, you're just, you're, it means you're really comfortable around each other and you're just, like that is even more powerful than having a good sex life where it's if if you're just intimate and having that connection and vulnerability whether nudity is involved or not but just having those moments where you can truly connect with someone that's intimacy and what would you say your purpose is I mean, I think just to be happy and to make other people happy. And I think that's a high bar of finding things you want to do and then really making other people happy, having a connection with other people. And I think one of the things I've realized in terms of relationships, whether that's with a spouse or I would think maybe with your friends of like being happy when others are happy or doing 
things for other people and getting a true satisfaction of it. I can't think of a better metaphor than on Christmas, wanting to give the gift rather than be the receiver of the gift because you derive more enjoyment out of seeing the other person happy than maybe they even get from getting the gift. And I, I don't, I'm not saying that's our purpose or the reason we're on, but like, if you can get to that place, that's really, then you can be even more happy because you're not just happy with what you're doing, but being happy for others. Only because I love operational definitions. What's your definition of happiness? I don't know if it's just like satisfaction or a sense of ease or like an enjoyment. And I realize there could be like more shallow sense, but I truly think of like being truly happy of being in the moment and really enjoying something, whether that's someone you're with or an activity Mm -hmm. almost on like a, maybe not self-actualization, but like enjoying a moment to the fullest, thoroughly. I think that's great because a lot of studies talk about how happiness is this permanent state of being, as people imagine it, that doesn't necessarily exist versus when you think about joy and you chase joy instead of happiness, you can live in that moment You can experience joy when you're sad, when you're depressed, when you're having a hard day in a small moment. You can experience joy for extensive periods of time, but joy is something practical, something more tangible and and much more real, which makes it better. Yeah, and I think in some ways you can't, like the highs can't be as high if you don't also experience lows of if, if you don't know how good you can have it because you've only experienced good times. Yeah. Hard lesson to learn, but yes. I definitely agree. Okay, so now we just have the rapid fire left. So this will be quick. So the first one, you just pick one or the other or answer whatever quickly. Pizza or pasta? Pizza. Sunrise yoga or dancing till sunrise? Sunrise yoga. Drink of choice. Old fashioned or an IPA? Hugs or kisses? Hugs. Sex or intimacy? Intimacy. Nature or nurture? Nurture. Best year of your life? It's been a good decade. (laughs) Who is your hero? Sarah or my mom? What kind of dog would you be? Well, I like to think I'd be like a German Shepherd, but I'd probably be a golden retriever. Of, <laughs> like, did you throw that stick? <laughs> I, I could get that stick. Something you're excited for in the next year? Being able to do anything <laughs> again. And your favorite tough question? What makes you tick? Okay, this one's word association. So first word that comes to mind. Culture. Expectations. Sex. Bedroom. Love. Hugging. You. Me. Us. Together. Be. Free to be you and me. (laughs) Man. Woman. Be a man. Strength. 
Change. Hard. Hope. Optimism. BBXX. Intimacy. Booyah. Thank you so much for joining me here. It was lovely to hear some of the same stories, but a lot of new perspectives and insights. And yeah, I'm just so glad to have you be a part of this. It was fun. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Until next time. Thanks again for tuning in and be sure to follow us on Instagram at bbxx.world for exciting updates and even more fantastic content. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, shoot us a text at 1-415-888-4742 or shoot us an audio, which we love, at that same number on WhatsApp. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and remember, I'm always here learning a ton myself right along with you.